we are starting a new series called Hey Jude. Okay, a study of the book of Jude. And here, as we're going to start this sermon, here's the name of it, Called, Kept, and Contending. Called, Kept, and Contending. And I want to give you the main point of the sermon to begin with, because that's what we're going to work on. So here it is, based on the book of Jude, Christians are called by God the Father, kept by Jesus Christ, and contend for the faith through the Holy Spirit. Christians are called by God the Father, kept by Jesus Christ, and contend for the faith through the Holy Spirit. So thank you for joining us this morning as we are jumping into this new book of the Bible. This will be the third book that we will complete by the end of this month that we've taught the books of the Bible since I came, became the pastor a few years ago, and we've been spending most of our time in the book of John, which when we finish that one day will be the fourth book that we've completed. So here's the thing about this book called Jude. It's rarely taught. It kind of just seems like the off-ramp onto Revelation, if you will. And so a lot of times we don't talk about it. It's only 25 verses. A lot of times it's just not understood. But the book is written by a man named Jude. Very good. And for the record, that isn't always true in the Word of God because Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and a few others are addressed to the individuals that the book is written to rather than the author of the book. But letters written by Jude are also like the book of Matthew, written by Matthew, Luke, Mark, John, 1st and 2nd Peter, James, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are all named after the author. As far as this time that this letter was written, we believe that it was written roughly around the mid-60s AD because this book seems to be an answer to the book of 2nd Peter. If you read 2nd Peter alongside Jude, they seem to be talking about similar things. 2nd Peter is talking about the false teachers that are going to get into the church, and Jude's talking about the false teachers that have already arrived at the church. It's written by a man named Jude, and Jude in Hebrew is Judah. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob and his wife Leah. Judah was one of the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel named Judah. In Greek, in the New Testament, which uh, the New Testament, this book in particular, was written in Greek, Jude translates to Judas. And sadly, that name has become synonymous with betrayal and selling out. See, we don't name our children Adolf very often, and we also don't name our kids Jude. It's very similar. But who is Jude? So let's read a little bit as we jump into this. Verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So what's Jude say? He says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. This is the term he begins with. He is a slave of the Christ is his explanation of who he is. He doesn't start with his family or with his title in the church, but he begins with the servanthood that he has to Jesus, the Messiah. That's where Jude begins. And as we've studied other letters like John in the book of Ephesians, I want to remind us that who we are is based on our identity as Christians in Jesus Christ. It's no longer if we have an identity because we're a Christian, it's no longer because of what we've done, but it's because of what Christ has done in our place, what he has accomplished. And when we grasp the goodness of the gospel 
the good news that Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't, died the death we should have, physically rose from the dead, is exalted to the right hand of the Father, that he's coming back one day. When we grasp that goodness of that message, we understand that all we are is because of what Christ has accomplished for us. That doesn't mean because we accepted him or did anything to be more desirable to God, but always completely and undeniably all we have relationship with God because God through grace was given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For everyone who has idolatry in their hearts or lacks passion for God and his commands, it's because we lack putting our identity solely in Jesus. We put our identity in our sports team. Don't tell me who's winning at 10 a.m. We put our identity in what we can do as far as our job. We put our identity in our children. We put our identity in our family. And for a lot of us, we have this idolatry that's being, we're placing identity on something that can't handle it. So can we be real today? The world seems to be getting worse. Has anyone watched the news? It just seems to be getting worse. And the arguments can be made that, We're just more informed today than we were before, but the Bible says that the world is going to get worse before it gets so much better. See, people care less and less about truth today than they did before. And to make them feel good about themselves, they want to listen to people that would say what they want to hear. Paul calls this out in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He says, 2,000 years ago, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This book of Jude we're about to study is all about the fact that false teachers aren't coming, but they've already infiltrated the church. Like in 2 Peter, we see that the church of the living God has people that are inside of it attempting to distort the truth, attempting to point people away from the good news of Jesus Christ. So what's the solution? Well, what we're going to see in Jude, what we see in 2 Peter, what we see in Paul's letters is that we ought to be on guard that we ought to know the word of God. We ought to be saturated in the truth of the word of God. But let me say it another way. We ought to embrace our identity in Jesus fully. Because the thing is, when we embrace our identity in Jesus, we stop hearing what the world wants to say, but we filter everything through what God says in his word, written by the Holy Spirit through valuable, messed up people, but it is a perfect word as it was originally written. So when we embrace our new identity in Jesus, we're not better versions of who we once were. We're new creations. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 21, we've studied this many times. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And what has he done? He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us those who are in Christ, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We rep Jesus, church. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God 
favorite verse, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only reason that we can be that, the only reason we can be ambassadors of Christ is not because we cleaned ourselves up morally, but because Christ has made us a new creation once we have trusted him by faith and repented and changed direction. So we are new creations. We aren't better versions of who we once were. We are new people. We are born again. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus replies to Nick at night or Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And if we are born again, we are made new, new in Christ. That doesn't mean that we were who we once were, the dead person that we used to be, and yet at the same time we're made alive in Christ, and for a bunch of us, all of us actually, that have trusted Christ, we still drag that dead body along behind us. We fall back into old habits, but what is certain is, what we trust is that when we've come to Christ, we have been made new. Our affections change for God. We're no longer enemies of his. We want to hear his word. We want to obey his commands because we are made in his likeness. What we're going to study in this letter is it is written to encourage fellow believers who are part of the church of God. They're accountable to elders that they must contend for the faith because these are people that could easily be misled if a false truth comes into the church. But that we, as the corporate worshipers of God, we ought to contend for the faith within the church. Now, hear me, none of, if you've been here at all, you're not going to be surprised by this. We are serious about God's truth here. We are serious about what God says. And for some of you, we're going to be so serious about this over the next few weeks that it's going to be too much for you because this book, to be totally honest, is harsh. Because when corruption tries to distort what the Word says to try to point us away from who God is, it's not something that God's people can ignore. But the teachings of the Bible constantly call the believers, the saints, if you will, to defend and contend against false teaching. See, we don't want to be moral cleaner-uppers. That is not our goal as the church. We're not here to make you sin less. We're here to help you be restored to God through what God has done. We're here to help you through God's work in you to become more holy and more sanctified. And the point is that the gospel that makes you alive makes you alive in Christ. This is not about making a makeover, but this is all about a takeover, that Christ would come and take over your life. So Jude, a new creation in Christ, a servant of Jesus the Messiah. But not only that, he has a second set of credentials which are going to start to shed some light. They're going to shed some light on who he really is. It says this, that he is the brother of James. <coughs> now, this is interesting. Jude says he's a servant of Jesus. This is his eternal relationship, that he is a servant of Jesus, but that he's also James's brother. One thing about the Bible is that there are so many different names that we have so many of the same names for different people. There's a bunch of Johns, if you will, in the Bible. In fact, there's John the Baptist, 
There are other Johns. There are, is the disciple whom Jesus loves, the, John, the same John who writes the book of John, writes Revelation, writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. There are a bunch of Marys, Mary including Mary Magdalene, or Mary, Jesus' mother, plus Mary who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So we hear about Jude, but Jude, like John, and like Mary, and like James, there's a lot of people with this specific name. See, the most infamous Jude, or Judas, was Judas Iscariot, who took his own life after feeling guilty of selling out the Messiah for just a few gold coins. But this book, as we said before, is being written in the mid-60s A.D. So this excludes Judas Iscariot because Scripture tells us that Judas took his own life. So is this Judas not Iscariot? What a messed up way to be addressed. Well, I'm not him. <laughs> is this Judas not Iscariot that's talked about in John 14, who was a disciple? He was generally referred to as Thaddeus. But there's not much to connect that Jude to a brother named James. There was also Judas in the book of Acts, chapter 9, who was a homeowner. Here's what it says in chapter 9, verses 10 through 11, when, they were, when Paul or Saul was about to to repent. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. But there's nothing that directly connects this Judas, which is only talked about once, to a brother named James. So where do we see Judas and James in a brother-sibling relationship? Matthew 13, verse 55. Here's what it says. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So here we see James and Judas as siblings. But most importantly, who are these brothers to? Well, let's pull out and let's point back a little bit. Verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? We believe that this is the same Jude that wrote the book of Judas. And Judas was a brother to James, but he was also a brother to Jesus. So why not just say that? Hey, y'all. I'm Judas. I'm uh, Jesus' brother. What's up? Kind of Frank Stallone kind of thing. You know what I mean? That's for a couple of us. But we look back at John chapter 7, and he says this in verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Hmm. Well, is it because he felt bad because he didn't believe in him? No, I don't think so. I think something changed. I think we have Jude and James, both brothers of Jesus, both who at one point did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. Let's just be real. Could any of us believe that our siblings were the Messiah? Probably not. And yet both called themselves servants of Jesus Christ in their own letters written by each of them. I'll show you. James chapter 1, verse 1a. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'd contend that both brothers, when they saw Jesus resurrected, when they talked with him, they realized that he was and always will be the Messiah. Because hear me, the resurrection of Jesus has always been the most powerful argument for the faith. It always has been and it always will be. You want to argue with Christians? Aim at the resurrection and let us know when you want to get baptized. You can consider his teachings human, Jesus's, but you can't explain away his resurrection without a supernatural intervention. So Jude chapter 1, verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So why didn't Jude use his own bloodline to his advantage? Because Jude and James, both brothers of Jesus in a worldly sense, no longer saw Jesus as only human. They understood that he was Lord. They understood that he was Savior as the Messiah. So their response was to be a servant. Let me say it harsher. Their response to the resurrected Jesus was to be a slave of his, wanting to be. Why? Not out of guilt for not believing in him at one point and trying to make penance, but because Jesus' supremacy was one that they now understood, that they now could understand his offer of salvation through his finished work on the cross and through the resurrection is the only means that made them right before God. It was only because of what he had accomplished. So Jude identifies as a servant of Jesus Christ, and because he was not as well known to the early church, as his brother James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he uses that connection to James as an affirmation of his right to write the letter he's about to. He writes it to the church or a group of churches, and what most people think is it was probably a heavily Jewish church that had become Christians, heavily Jewish Christians that were in a very heavy Gentile culture. So here's what it says in one. I want to I stress a part of it, the second part of verse 1. To those who have been called. To those who have been called. Judas, Jude, or Judas, Jude uses language which differentiates goats from sheep. Remember we had the sheep pen? You guys remember that? I, I'm a sheep? Very good. So those who are called. Called, calling, and call seems to be a junk drawer for what we do in Christian culture. Well, I was called to drive over there. Oh, I was called to buy that. I was, shut up, okay? Called implies both relationship and or task, okay? That's what it generally means in Scripture. And here Jude is using called as those who are in relationship with Jesus Christ. They are God's chosen people. Chosen by who? Not you. And this is who he's speaking to. Because this letter in particular is to warn those who are called by God that there are people among them that are not called by God. Now, this is difficult for many of us to stomach. We tend to think if someone's moral, if someone says, my pleasure, after you say thank you, if that person goes to church consistently, then obviously they are a redeemed person. And even though I'd say that someone who goes to church consistently could and should be doing it for the right reasons, worshiping with the body of believers corporately, using their gifts within the church body for the glory of God, and to be seen accountable to a local church body, that doesn't necessarily mean that their motives are proper. 
Many come to the church to justify themselves by everything but the grace and work of Jesus Christ. You ask someone about their relationship with Jesus, and what do they do? Sometimes they point to their baptism. Maybe they point to the church that they attend once in a while. Maybe they point to the good deeds that they've done, which none of these things are bad, but unless unless their motivation is to give glory to God rather than to justify themselves, these works are what Paul calls filthy rags. And the rest of this letter is not going to challenge the false teaching of these false teachers. The rest of this letter is going to challenge the lifestyle and the actions of those false teachers. So the final part of verse 1, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Those who are called and loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Those who are in relationship with Christ are loved by God the Father, but the intention of this term in other translations is this. It says, those who are sanctified in God the Father. Now, sanctified, we talk a lot about sanctification, spiritual growth. Here's what it means. It means to be made holy. It means to be set apart. And those who have been called by God are set apart by the Father for who? The Son. We understand that those who God calls to himself through Jesus Christ are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. We see this specifically recorded in the prayer in John 17. Here's what it says at the beginning of John 17. Father, Jesus says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all that those you have given him. Skip to verse 6. I have revealed to you, to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me. They have obeyed your word. They're not yours because they obeyed the word. Because you've given them to me, they now obey the word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Those who are called and chosen by God are gifts. And they are what this verse concludes with. At the end of verse 1, it says, kept for Jesus Christ. Oh, so much power in that one little phrase. The eternal security that Christians receive in Jesus Christ can be quantified in this simple phrase, kept for Jesus We are preserved in Jesus Christ. We don't earn it. It was a gift, and we cannot lose it. We may still have to deal with the decay and the death that sin has produced in this world, but our salvation, our security in Jesus Christ, that gift that was given to us, will not and cannot be taken away if it was truly given to us. And as we're going to see much more next week, you don't lose your salvation, but those who walk away from the free gift of grace of Jesus Christ never receive the gift in the first place. More on that next week. But verse 2, Jude says, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. I don't want you to miss out on just how affectionate Jude is to those who are God's people. 
mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Mercy and peace. This is a very common Jewish salutation. In fact, Peter used that at the beginning of his second letter, but Jude includes love. Mercy and peace are things that we hope for others, right? You hope mercy and peace for other people, unless they've cut you off on the road, right? Unless they've done something to us, we don't want them to have mercy in that case. We want them to have justice. But what we see in our God is that he does give mercy. He doesn't give you what you deserve. And then he takes it a step further, and he gives you grace, which is giving you what you don't deserve in Jesus Christ, in love. For God so loved the world. God's love, when we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. Mercy and peace. Peace is something that we usually think of in the sense of world peace. We think peace, no war. And yet, biblically, what this really meant was that there would be shalom. Say shalom. It's a fun word to say. Shalom. (laughs) That shalom would be restored. Ever since sin entered in, all the way back, recorded in Genesis chapter 3, ever since sin has entered in, there has been a chasm between us and God, and Christ is the one the one and only that could provide substitutionary atonement, which we talked about last week, so that the wrath of God would be satisfied that we could have peace with God. In fact, the apostle, or the apostle, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary, said these words in Isaiah 53, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Messiah came to bring peace between us and God, and it is only through Jesus' sacrifice and substitution that peace could be achieved. But Jude says, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Jude wishes for those who are God's possession to have mercy, peace, and love in abundance because that is what God offers to his people. I can't tell you how blown away I am by what God does in his people, by what he does through the people that he's drawn to himself and kept in Jesus Christ. I've seen marriages that were crumbling be restored because of Jesus Christ. I've seen people who didn't have enough strength to weather a storm rely on God's strength and not only get through the trial, but be more refined into Jesus' likeness on the other end of that trial. Abundance is something that God is all about. Not in material or monetary possessions, but in mercy, peace, and love. Now let's move on to the key verse that explains what this entire letter is all about. And I can't promise you that today in the next 13 minutes that we're going to get through everything that this verse has to say, but it will center us on what this entire letter is about. So here's what it says, verse 3. Dear friends, or in other translations, beloved, 
Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled, good word, to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. What an interesting confession. Jude wanted to write about the common salvation that they share in Jesus Christ, but instead he felt this compulsion, this control to write instead about the need that they had for those who were in the faith to contend for that faith. For those who have received salvation and grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he wanted to tell them to contend for the faith. The drastic contrast of what this letter could have been about is kind of crazy to me. What we're going to study next week is Jude calling out a type of people who aren't eventually going to get into the church, but have already infiltrated the church. And Jude writes a letter to the called and kept to look out for them, to contend against them, and to persevere in the faith. Dear friends, dear beloved Jude has began this letter with who the author is and who the letter is to. Those called and kept in Jesus Christ, loved by God, they are friends, they are co-laborers, they are beloved alongside Jude. I just want to state that what he writes in the next 22 verses that we're going to study over the next three weeks is not because he's legalistic. It's not because he's a fundamentalist, but because he loves his brothers and sisters in the faith, and he loves the faith that he will come and say the hard things and will tell them to contend for the faith, not out of legalism, but out of love. He was eager to write about the salvation they share and the goodness of being called and kept in Jesus Christ. But my guess is he probably heard something. And the Spirit must have led him in a different direction as he put his pen to paper. Because there was a 180-degree turn that was made that created a much different letter than what we would have originally gotten if he did what he wanted to do under his own work, his own will. I want us to have a healthy and biblical understanding of what it means to contend. Because it'd be very easy to take the word contend and build a bunch of liberty or legalism around it. Contend means to fight for. That's what contend means. It means to fight for. It means to struggle against, to struggle through a difficulty and to assert something as a position in an argument. The New American Standard, NASB, it says it this way, to earnestly contend for the faith is what Jude says. The word that is used is the word that we get agonize from, that we ought to agonize over contending for the faith. And this is something much more than a debate that we have about different sports teams or about preference. This is something that all Christians must care about and speak up about. Listen, for a lot of people who believe they are Christians, they think contending for the faith is for the professionals, don't they? They think, oh, that's for the select few. Those are for the apologists or the theologians or the pastors or the missionaries. But contending for the faith is one who is for those who have been called by God and kept in Jesus Christ. Contending for the faith isn't what justifies you, but it's what those who have been justified do. We contend for the faith. 
I've known people who want to contend for morality. Have, you guys know people like this. They want to have their legalistic interpretations of the Bible rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ and pointing people to the beauty and power of grace in Jesus, that's too easy. They want to change the way people live in their morals. Next week, we're going to hear Jude's examples of those who have abandoned the truth and what they actually are like. But if you are contending, here's what you're contending for. You are contending for truth. Not any truth, not subjective truth, but absolute truth in Jesus Christ. Crucified, resurrected, and reigning kind of truth in the person, work, and teachings and deity of Jesus Christ. That is the truth that we contend for. See, we as God's people ought to major in the majors. But most arguments amongst Christians, they're not majoring in the majors. They're totally minoring in the minors or majoring in the minors. And I know many Christians, just let's be real, that don't like the Bible translation that's in front of you. They don't like NIV. They're like nearly inspired version. I don't want anything to do with that one. It doesn't say this. King James only. Shut up. Okay? I understand that some people have preference. But hear me. I know Christians who dislike new Christian music. Can you believe that? I know redeemed followers of Christ that would immerse or sprinkle a baby in water, not as salvation, but as dedication. I even know that we have different preferences, we have different interpretations of similar verses, but that doesn't mean that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead doesn't reside in both of us. But where heresy, this is what we're talking about when it takes away the deity of Jesus Christ, where heresy isn't just false teaching, but it's the emphasis of the wrong thing. That's why we want to, and even as uh, servants as servants for Christ this morning, we're doing a vision time, and I was reminded that if I ever start getting away from making Jesus the point, I'll be reminded, and I praise God for that. We must make sure that we both agree upon that salvation is a gift from God through grace alone, received by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way that we come into contact with God and not be enemies. Once we add human effort, once we add the work of the will or a, de a decision of someone else's plans other than God, we're not talking about the same God, nor the same salvation, nor the same faith. To emphasize man's work or to emphasize the glory of anyone but God, that's heresy. And so heresy isn't just false teaching, it's emphasizing the wrong thing. And Jude tells us that those in the faith, those called by God, those kept by Jesus, those sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we contend, we fight for truth. But what truth are we to emphasize? Now listen, I believe this cover to cover. And as we jump through books like this, man, it's going to be hard because you're going to see what I really believe about this. As we have to talk about things that in this culture would generally get me fired if I said what this says. But I'm going to preach it honestly because you ain't my boss. God is. And the elders. And I believe the word of God from cover to cover, and it reads me more than I read it. But what I don't understand in this book is not because the infinite God who wrote a Bible wrote it with mistakes in it, but because I am yet to understand how it all fits together. So let me give you the answer key. 
Let me give you the emphasis that must be emphasized as we study the book of Jude. And for some, it's going to sound way too simple. And for some, it's going to sound way too far-fetched. And for some of us, it's going to be so beautiful. The truth that we contend for always is that it's all about the person, work, and deity of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. That's what we contend for, church. Catholics want to make Jesus a way unto God, but not the only way. Mormons treat Jesus like a God, but not the God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was the second coming of an angel. Muslims believe that he was a great prophet named Isa, but not God in the flesh. The Pharisees saw him as an insurrectionist. The disciples, for most of Jesus' earthly ministry, saw him as a prophet, a teacher, and a possible political figure. Atheists want to argue if he even existed, or that he, the claims about him were made up years after he lived. Agnostic don't care what he did or didn't do. Many in society want to just assume he's a historical figure that taught some great things while having a pretty cult following. Listen, the entire work of the Spirit, the entire Word of God concludes that it's all about Jesus Christ dying, rising, exalted, and coming back. That is what we contend for, church. And not just because I use the dad voice. But we contend for that Jesus because don't let anyone lower his supremacy. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus isn't the point because it's all about him. If I could drop this mic, I would. <laughs> and only by finding our right standing and our fulfillment and our soul identity in him will we ever be made whole in this life or the life to come. Jude isn't the only one that points to this. Listen, the Apostle John, in the first epistle that he writes, in 1 John, he says this in chapter 4, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Let me say that again, verse 3. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. It's all about Jesus, church. And who people believe him to be, that is the entire point of the book of John that we are studying and will continue to study next year. But Jesus puts a line in the sand, doesn't he? Listen to Jesus' very words recorded by the disciple Matthew. Whoever acknowledges me before others... I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose I come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's not that hard. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. See, Jesus didn't come to bring peace on earth, but to bring peace between us and God. And that peace will cause division between those who are true followers of Christ and those who are not. 
even in the same households. Now, I don't know how you hear those words. I don't know if you hear, oh man, Jesus is scary. Oh, that's probably why uh, bad things happen and wars happen. That's not what he was saying. He was saying that there will be people in your own household that will not believe what you believe. They will emphasize things that you will not emphasize, but you continue to follow your God no matter what. He continues in verse 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Wow. I don't know how you hear that. I know that for some of you, there's no way I could love God more than my son. I get it. But the Spirit produces that in you. The Spirit makes you realize that everything you have is a gift from him. I love my four children. I got to take Evie, my third daughter, out yesterday. We went and had lunch. I was like, babe, anywhere you want to go. She's like, Taco Bell. I'm like, okay. <laughs> babe, anything you want on the menu, $1 nachos. Man, I love me some Evie, all right? Just putting that out there. And I adore her, and she's beautiful, but you know what? She's a terrible God. Jesus becomes the end all for those who have realized that they are completely bankrupt spiritually and are in need of God's intervention. The Apostle John has harsh words as well for those who do not see Jesus as ultimate, who teach others. And give those who are found in Christ some guidelines of what we should and shouldn't do. Here's what he says, 2 John chapter 6, or chapter 6, 2 John verses 6 through 11, and this is love, that we walk in his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may re be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Wow. Now, does this mean that you don't let people in your home who don't have perfect theology? Well, if that were true, we'd all be homeless. So no. That's the fundamentalist way of looking at this passage. What John is warning is for the person who claims to be in the faith, yet teaches a false doctrine you steer clear of, you don't associate with, you don't even greet them. This is harsh, but by your association to them, you may be unintentionally convincing an onlooker that your faiths are the same, even though they deny the incarnation and deity of Jesus Christ. This isn't the person that's outside the church. This is about the people that are inside the church that claim that they love Jesus, they claim that they're a Christian like you, but they deny that Jesus is the point. Jude was speaking about contending in the church. And even though we live in the world, we do not need to attempt to fight against people outside of the church that are yet to believe. They are not our enemy. The devil is. 
People who do not believe in Jesus, who know they don't believe in Jesus, and they tell you they don't believe in Jesus, they are not the enemy. And for centuries, the way that people in the church have treated those outside of the church has been one of the best excuses for those who are perishing to not believe. I don't think at all that our conduct makes it so those who are called by God cannot receive his grace. But what I'm saying is we become the excuse rather than the conduit of grace that God purposes us to be. 1 Peter chapter 3, 15 through 17, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So when it comes to contending for the faith, this book of the Bible in particular is pointing us to those who claim that they are in the truth. They claim to have been justified. They claim they are called and kept by Jesus Christ, but they teach and believe another gospel. And we, as God's people, those entrusted with salvation are to contend and defend within the church for the glory of God's name. So if you hear me, church, teach another gospel other than this one, if you hear me emphasize someone above the God of the Trinity, then you ought to contend, question, and challenge such things. Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And we have already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia to contend against the false teaching of the Judaizers who believed and preached that in order to become a Christian, you first had to be under the Levitical law, if you were male, you had to be circumcised. There's a lot today in the church of Jesus Christ that we contend with, but most of it is moralism. Most of it is works. So let me say this. Look at people in the church with grace, with mercy, with peace and love and abundance. Look at them and point them to Jesus. While like Jude, always remembering and pointing us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ in which we are unified and adopted into the family of God. But hear me, we must contend and make sure that those who call the church of Jesus Christ their home are not teaching a gospel that is in conflict with what Jesus already accomplished by bringing the kingdom of God here to earth, by living the perfect life that we cannot live, dying the death that we all deserve to die, and victoriously rising from the dead. See, Jesus is our only sole means of righteousness and salvation and justification. It's all about Jesus.